0: We began a Sunday evening series, and we're calling it Discovery. If you want to impress your friends, you can tell them you're taking a course in hermeneutics on Sunday night. That's what a seminary would call it. And uh, it is the art and science of interpretation. Taking a document, whether new or ancient, and reading that document in a way as to understand what the author is trying to communicate to the audience. Are you following me? So when we come to a document like an epistle or a prophecy or a psalm or a proverbial sage, the question is, who wrote it? Why did he write it? Who is it that received the letter? And what does it mean then? And what does it mean now? When we come to a psalm, say Psalm 23 here, who wrote it? Why did he write it? Who received it when he wrote it? What did it mean back then to the original hearer? And what does it mean now to me at the graveside reading it at a funeral? Whenever we come to an ancient document, the overarching question is, what's the occasion What prompted this person to write this kind of letter or document to those people? What is the occasion that caused the letter to the church in Corinth to be written or Philemon to be written, a letter about Onesimus? You know the story. What what caused it to be written? Now, the difficulty with interpretation is it's not like math. If you don't like math, you might like interpretation. With math, one plus one is always two. It's easy, right? I mean, now you can get some very difficult math, but the rules still apply. There may be different ways to get to the same answer, but the reality is it's hard and fast. It's black and white. It's going to add up. If you're a CPA, the books have to balance to the penny. When it comes to something like reading a narrative or a piece of poetry or a prophecy or apocalyptic literature like Revelation or Daniel, then, well, it's not quite like math, is it? It is a science. I'm gonna give you a, a toolbox over these next few weeks and you can put them in your toolbox and then you can try to apply the tools you have to the documents to understand what they mean. And so it is a science, but it's also an art, and therefore some do it a little better than others because there is both science and art to it. We have to become a historian. What was it like in the first century, or in a B.C. century when this book was written? We have to become a sociologist. What? people group are the Samaritans, and how are they related to the Jews, and what would be their habits, and how would their worship habits be different from the Jewish worship habits, and why do they have a different temple, and why do they accept different books for their scripture. You have to become something of a psychologist if you're reading the Apostle Paul. I think you've learned that through going through Romans. What's on his mind? And lastly, and most importantly, at least to some extent of reading various translations, you have to become a linguist. What do these words mean? What does a passive tense mean or an active tense? And how does that relate to how I understand what's being said? But there is no one mechanical system that will unlock it all for you. It is an art and a science. Are there any rules to tell you what the words I love you mean? Well, that, those three words, depending on the context, can mean completely different things, can they not? It can mean we're about to get married. It can mean me, me, you're my grandmother, and I, I think so highly of you, and, and I, I respect you. I love you. There is no set of rules that I could give you to totally understand what those mean unless you know who's saying it, to whom they are saying it, when they're saying it, and why. You see what I'm saying? It's an art and a science. And if you think it's hard to go back 2,000 years to understand an idiom that might be used in the Bible or what it means, it's hard in our own culture. I'm gonna give you some words and see if you can get what they mean according to the youth culture. And I've talked to some students, so I know I'm using these words rightly. And so you'll, you'll understand that. The students have it all messed up today. They, they, well, in my day, if you were dating somebody, that meant you might go to dinner in a movie. That's not what dating means now. The word steady doesn't even exist. That's dating. You follow me? And if you're dating somebody, then you're talking. Now, you make sense of that. <laughs> so I'll see some students from our youth group out eating, and I'll look to one of my daughters and say, so they're dating, which would mean They're going steady. And they say, no, they're just talking, which I mean, oh, they're just having a conversation. Well, talking doesn't mean having a conversation. Talking means dating, and dating doesn't mean dating. Dating means going steady. See how confusing this is? I can't even go back forward a few years to the present culture, much less go back to to the Greek text or the Hebrew text or the Aramaic text and be able to understand those words. Bougie, do you know what that is? <laughs> See, they do. Well, as bourgeois is the root, once I found out where it came from, now I understand it. You can't just take a little word bougie and put it out there and expect somebody to understand it. Now, you guys don't have a clue what it means, do you? <laughs> it is someone who lives a fancy lifestyle, maybe spends a lot of money on showy things. And when you say someone is bougie, it's usually a pejorative term. You're making fun of them. Maybe she's outliving her means and trying to look really, really cool is what we would say in my day. It gets worse. It gets worse. The words, I'm dead. You know what that means? Well, when somebody calls a church office and says so-and-so's dead, that means we got to plan a funeral. (laughs) But I'm dead means something different to this group. It means something is so funny that they're beyond laughter. They're just dead. So when they're laughing at something, they'll say, I'm dead. And I'm like, we got to do a funeral. But it doesn't mean you're doing a funeral. It means something's good. And it's funny. You got it. You don't got it. And that's why it's hard. Okay. Woke. I don't know if I'm going to even interpret that for you. It can be (laughs) positive to you or negative to you. Depends on what spin you put on it. But if someone is woke. Now, Back in many of your days, that meant someone has awakened out of her bed and is ready to go to work. To be woke today does not mean that you've just quit snoring. It means something completely different than that. Or something's really, really good is sick now. That's kind of old now, I think, actually, to say something is sick, but if somebody says that that's sick, I think well that must be terrible, but no, sick is good. you see the doctor's shaking his head, he's saying sick is not good but but to them, sick is good. I guess I've demonstrated now, if anyone shook here this evening what it <laughs> How difficult it is to even understand the languages, the language in terms of our own culture that's underneath us. They do that so we won't understand what they're saying, right? And you really won't understand what they're saying because when they say, Are you dating? No, we're just talking. That means they're dating, Mom. You better, better be careful. Well, we have to bridge that gap between the cultures. We have to bring together the linguistic, the language issues, the historical issues, the social issues, the cultural gap that exists between ancient times and modern times and our culture and their culture. The tendency that I see, not only amongst common readers of Scripture, this is actually a tendency among scholars, or I would say so-called scholars, and that is what I would call a reader interpretation or a reader response interpretation. For, and I do not accept that as an adequate way to approach Scripture. A reader response orientation says I can open up this Bible and I can find a passage and I can read it, and whatever it means to me, that's what it means. That's called reader response. Whatever, I open it up, I read it. Whatever it says, that's what it means. Well, that's kind of an arrogant approach, isn't it? It wasn't originally written to me. As Robbie said, it's written for me. But there was an original author who had an original audience, and what was written meant something was being communicated. I'll give you an example of an extreme reader response interpretation. There's a woman who went to see her pastor, and said that uh, the Lord was telling her to get a divorce. Now, she had no biblical means by which to get a divorce, no biblical reason to get a divorce. She was romantically relating to another man who wasn't her husband, and she was at fault, and she just said she wanted to get a divorce. And the pastor said, whatever put it in your mind that the Lord who says, I hate divorce, and the prophet wants you to get a divorce. She said, I opened up my Bible this morning. I opened it up to Ephesians 4:24, and it said, put on the new man. And there you go. <laughs> she was serious. Now, that is ultimate reader response. She didn't have any idea who Paul was or why Paul would say to Ephesus, put on the new man, or who the new man is or how you'd put him on. <laughs> but in her life, she wanted a new husband. And her response as a reader was, put on the new man. Now we laugh at her, but the question is, in more subtle ways, how often do we do the same? How often do we find the meaning in ourselves and not in the author or the audience or the original intent? A big word for it, I like to interpret trying to find authorial intent. What did the author mean? What is the intent of the author? Not what is my intent as a reader. But we live in such a self centered culture in day that you can see how a reader response, and there's actually well, they would say legitimate scholars who read a response is the way they read a text, and they say the meaning is found in the reader and not in the writer, and not even the original audience. You see, it's a way of looking at the text. It's a tricky way of making uh, Plato out of uh, silly putty out of, out of Scripture. Well, none of us comes to Scripture completely objective. We all have our presuppositions. We all bring our past and our present and what we supposed to be our future to the text. And so what we're trying to do in these next few weeks in putting together this interpreting class here is to help you, as best you can, be as objective as you can to read the text as the author intended you to read it. Well, where is the meaning then? Well, there's a couple of questions. What did the writer or the speaker mean when he or she wrote it? Any document, not just Scripture. What did the writer or the author mean when he or she wrote it? And then the second question, of course, is, well, how did the original reader, hearer, or audience understand it? How did the church in Corinth receive what we call 1 Corinthians, which may not be the first letter to the church at Corinth? How did they receive what Paul had said? And then Paul would correct and send another letter. No, I didn't mean that. I meant this. So the message is found. And what did the author intend? And how would the first listeners, they didn't all have copies of it. They heard it read in church. How did the first listeners hear the message? How did they hear what was 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 being said. Well, the text has meaning. The meaning is in the author and as it's received by the original audience, and that's very, very important. So when you're reading a book, you need to know something about the author. In fact, when you know that the writer of the Gospel of Luke is a physician, it kind of helps you understand why he places emphasis on some stories and not other stories, and he kind of sounds and talks like someone interested in science, and he observes healings in a different way than do the other gospel writers. Or if you're reading something from the Apostle Paul, you need to know he's a Jew. You need to know he's a Jew who obeys the law, meaning he is a Pharisee. It might even help you to know he's a tent maker. You see, what do we know about Paul? Was Paul married, single, divorced? We won't go into all that tonight, but if you're going to read Paul's letters on marriage and his advice and single and staying single, then what was the marital status of the apostle who pens 13 letters of the New Testament? It might make a difference in how you, you read them. You see what I'm saying? What is the audience? What is the relationship with the author too? The audience. Are they friends? Ah, when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, they're his friends. They're his joy. When Paul might write to Galatians, he might be mad, you see. I won't call them foes, but ticked. Paul's ticked. You need to know his mood when he writes. I'm surprised how quickly you have deserted, he writes to those in Galatia. Well, 2,000 years have passed. We're talking about some Old Testament books. It may be 3,000 years have passed. And so we got a long bridge to build back to the original author and the real audience to understand what's going on. We cannot impose ourselves any more than cannot be helped upon an ancient text and make it mean what we want it To mean, can we? And we can ruin some text. I'll give you an example Luke 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. Our children learn reading the story of the Good Samaritan coming up through Sunday school, and they associate those two words Good Samaritan, it's written right there, not in the original writing of the Gospel of Luke, but right there in the Bible heading, some editors added the word good Samaritan, and so the kids say, oh, the Samaritans are good. Well, that ruins the story. The Samaritans are not good. The Samaritans are, in the eyes of the Jew, awful. You, find, you see what I'm saying? So when you call the Samaritan good to your kids and your grandkids, and they think, oh, Samaritans are good people, then you, you've lost the whole history of the sociology of the text, and that is the Jews hate The Samaritans. In fact, they won't even travel through Samaria, will they? Unless they're Jesus. They'll go the other side of the river, go up north, come over. They're not going through Samaria. That's what's surprising and shocking about Jesus is he travels through Samaria. You see, they hate the Samaritans. Worse than they hate Gentiles. Samaritans are half Jews half-breeds they worship the wrong place they got the wrong books in their scripture they're trying to help us rebuild a temple when we don't need help from the likes of them and so when Jesus tells a story to Jewish lawyers the end of the story the Jewish lawyer is not the hero but the dreaded Samaritan is the hero of the story that's shocking In fact, if you were to tell today to a Jew, you'd say, an Arab terrorist is a hero. Now that changes the story, doesn't it? But you go around calling the Samaritan good, you've ruined the story, you see? Because the sociology, the different cultures involved in that that story. We must avoid the tendency to regard our own experience as a standard for interpreting what we see and read, we all suffer the same malady, and that is to expect that our own experiences of the world are normative, valid, and true. How he has viewed the world, has experienced the world and views the world is normative, valid, and true. Well, that's. So, until I meet somebody else who sees it from a different perspective, it enriches me and teaches me another way of seeing the world, right? Well, for example, we'll go to the issue of of slavery. Now, we got the book of Philemon, where Onesimus is the slave, Philemon is a slave owner. And Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. He writes a letter called the Book of Philemon. Well, prior to the Civil War, there was an interpreter by the name of J.A. Hopkins who read Philemon this way. He wanted to own slaves, and so he read it this way. Paul finds a fugitive slave and converts him to the gospel and then sends him back again to his old home with a letter of kind recommendation. Why does St. Paul act thus? Why does he not counsel the fugitive to claim his right to freedom and defend his right to be free? The answer is very plain. St. Paul was inspired and knew the will of the Lord Jesus Christ and was only intent in obeying it. And who are we that in our modern wisdom presume to set aside the word of God? So there's Hoskins using his worldview as a southern slave owner to read the book of Philemon in such a way as a reader response to defend the owning of slavery. You see? Well, what are our challenges? First of all, there's the distance of time. From now all the way back then. Well, where is back then? It's 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. Depends if you're doing New Testament or Old Testament. And so one of the things that we have to bridge is this bridge of time. A lot of time has transpired, and if we can't keep up with youth culture terms or young adult terms within the last 10 years, how can we possibly keep up with the idioms of ancient Greece? There you go. It's the distance and the bridge of time. And then there's cultural differences cultural differences. Have you ever been to a different culture and everything's different? You wonder why they do this and how they do that? And, well, I'm kind of from a different culture, the old South, South Carolina. I had to understand some things about West Texas. I'm a missionary here, and I've been here long enough, and you've adopted me, but you don't have the appreciation for boiled peanuts that I do. It's just not, not there. I don't understand that. I I took Dan with me to do a revival in South Carolina, and on the side of the road, there was one of those big trash cans, and a fellow was boiling boiled peanuts. I was so excited that I could treat Dan to a southern delicacy. We pulled over and dipped out of the trash can, and Dan took about two of them, and he said, Pastor, how many of these do I have to eat? (laughs) I said, Dan, not another one. You just hand me your cup. He didn't know how to suck the juice out and split it with his tongue and spit it out. He didn't know anything about all that. New Year's Day, you just do black-eyed peas. That's pennies. We do collard greens. We want cash. We do peas and collard greens. That's pennies and cash if you're going to get both of them. And how many of you wake up on New Year's Day and say rabbit, rabbit, rabbit is your first three words. In the Old South, that's good luck all year long. And that fellow Samson, why didn't he cut his hair? What's that about? Was he just a hippie or is there a scriptural reason? Is there a Nazarite vow that would cause him to let his hair grow long? And What does that mean and what else goes with growing hair? You see how culture gets odd? You don't. when's the last time you've seen a young man with long hair and he says, I'm doing the Nazarite vow? No, no, it's not the Nazarite vow now, but for Samson, it was. And why would in those days they take oil and anoint a priest and a king and someone sick? And why would you use oil on those three occasions? And why would that make sense? And when you want to get a piece of land in the book of Ruth, why would you take your shoes off? Why on earth did you take your sandal off to redeem a piece of land for your family? And why, what does that mean to take your... You see how this gets? You have to know another culture. And anytime you go on a mission trip, we don't just send you there. We have someone come from that culture and say, you really don't do this. This will be really offensive. And if they serve you this, this is the way you eat it. And if they say this, this is what it means. I mean, you you can't go from here to the Northeast without us having to give you a class like that, can you? The cultures are different. Someone who's been there and knows the culture and the people and the language, can they help us understand because we're lost. It's all different there, you see? Now, what about these Levitical purity laws? In Leviticus 19.19 19 says, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of materials. You, you out there have them, the polywool blends. You have just, you have broken the Torah right here. Leviticus 19.19, 19, no polywool blends. Only one type of garment. You see how complicated it gets? I think you can wear your polywool blends. That's, that's, that's okay. Cultural distance, time distance geographical distance, different time, different place, biblical times. You say, well, we can go to the Holy Land and visit all those places. You can and you have and you will, but the culture there has changed in the last 2,000 years than it was when Jesus walked, and some of the cities are under a lot of feet of dirt, and it's different now than it was then. And then we have the distance of language. The distance of time, the distance of culture, the geographical distance, and then the distance of language. The Bible's written in basically three languages, Hebrew and Greek primary, and then Aramaic for a few sections of the Old Testament, very limited, but a few. And to really understand these works and these documents, ideally, you would be able to read Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. you can't, and so we translate it, and it's put out there. And, but the problem is a translation itself also includes interpretation. Do you understand? You ever see someone preaching a revival, and the guy's translating, and the preacher says something, and he goes like this? I mean, how do I say this in the new culture? Let me give you an example. And That's why it's actually good to use multiple translations, because it helps you see the confusion back in the original, original text. In 1 Corinthians one. The NIV reads, it is good for a man not to marry. NIV, 1 Corinthians 7.1, it is good for a man not to marry. The King James Version, the RSV says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The Phillips Translation says, it is a good principle for a man to have no physical contact with women, And the NEB, the New English Bible, says it's a good thing for a man to have nothing to do with women basically at all. There you go. (laughs) What does the Greek say? We're not going to do that tonight. We'll do that when we do 1 Corinthians, and we can help you with the Greek text. But you see, if you would read four translations of 1 Corinthians 7-1, you get the idea there's something unclear here. I need to know the context. What is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 7 to understand, is the NIV right? Is the RSV right? Is the NEB right? Which one is right? All that to say is, even when we read a translation, someone has made some decisions for us. Well, why do we want to understand Scripture? Because there's an eternal revelance to the Word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, my grandfather used to say, but the word of God will stand forever. We still study these old prophecies and books and songs and wisdom sayings because they mean something to us. They are dear to us. We can see earthquakes and 9-11s. We can experience pandemics Viruses and our whole world seems to change. It seems to be like the psalmist says that the mountains are slipping into the heart of the sea and the waters, well, the whole earth, it's quaking and foaming. And we want that city whose streams make glad the city of God. We want something that doesn't change, something that is as true today as it was Yesterday, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God stands forever. And we believe that while Paul was writing to the church at Corinth or to the churches in the region of Galatian or to the happy church at Philippi that was his joy, we believe all that to be true. We want to know the author and the audience, but we also want to know, what does that mean to me today? in West Texas, in Amarillo. How does that impact my life, my walk with Christ? When I read about the suffering of the early believers in First Peter, how does that relate to my suffering and my sickness and my fiery trial that I find myself fallen in the midst? We need to be sure In the midst of it all, that we hear God's voice, God's word, written by so many different authors over such a great span of time. And what makes these books different than all the other books? There's only one book that matters. I've got a library full of books. But there's only one book that really matters in the end, isn't it? And that's this book. And no other book is like this book. No other book has a right to claim your life like this book makes demands and claims on our lives. And Shakespeare is interesting, but Shakespeare is not Scripture. It's, it's different, isn't it? Thus saith the word God Almighty, the Word of God creates something out of nothing. The Word of God is never null and void. It always accomplishes what God wants it to accomplish. The Word of God can even put on flesh and dwell among us and be crucified and resurrected again. We want to know God's Word. There's nothing as important as God's word and how did these books even get collected like this what is a canon that just something you fire in a civil war we're gonna do canon next week let us pray oh god thank you for those who are here tonight because they love your word They've yielded their life to your word, and they want to know what it says because they want to walk rightly, live rightly, and be challenged and changed. By thus saith the Lord God Almighty. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.